You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 240 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I just headbutted the microphone. Did you hear that? <laughs> oh, that's really clever. Why were you headbutting the microphone? I don't know. How, I'm good, Val. How are you going? So you're like a cat. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, stroking up against it. Yeah. <laughs> um what have you been up to lately in the world of photography and and life well in the world of life uh i Uh just chainsawed the christmas tree i feel so tough right now there's nothing that makes you feel tougher than having a chainsaw (laughs) where did you put the remnants into the uh recycle for you know Bush bits. <laughs> Why do you have a chainsaw? Because limbs fall off trees and they need to be cut up into like manageable chunks so that they can either be recycled or disposed of or burnt in the fire or all sorts of things. Yeah, there's lots of trees where there's you live. Lots of I trees. Suppose. So yeah, mm. I had to. I couldn't couldn't um, dispose of the Christmas tree. The council wouldn't pick it up as a, a lot, so I had to chop it up, and I'm very proud of myself. It was oh fun. my goodness, what a time consuming exercise! It was enjoyable, Valerie. I, I... okay. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Oh my goodness, what have I been up to? Okay, well, I am I've got my exhibition on this week. So, I'm part of a group exhibition at an art gallery in Balmain in Sydney, uh called Art Gallery on Darling. And yeah, so I've been putting D-rings on the back of um on the back of artwork mm. and photographing artwork and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just that's what's been happening. It's so this week's exhibition week, so that's going to be taking up most of my time this week, I think. Yeah, fantastic. Well, that's <laughs> exciting. I hope you'll post a photo of the show in the uh, Facebook group. That would be great to see. Okay, yes, that's a good idea. That should be um, – I'll so that's be able the, to do that. <laughs> not the Guggenheim. I'll wait for the uh, – when's Yeah, the, it's not the Guggenheim. When's the um, Venice – Biennale, when's that? Biennale. Yeah. <laughs> is that this next year, is it? I, yes. Uh, no. When is it Did they exactly? just have it this year? Is it this year? I think it's this year. Yeah. Have you got any and pieces so therefore, in that this year? It, <laughs> it will be 2021 before the next one is, I think. Oh, that's when your next uh, show is. No, I have not... Gina, no. <laughs> interestingly enough. So, just put it out there, no. Val. 
and uh, yeah, hopefully right. there'll be something. <laughs> I'll go to that. If you um, have a piece, <laughs> I will go. All right. All right. Maybe maybe we'll just move on to this week's topic, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is from amateur to pro in less than three years with this week's guest, Andy McPherson. Now, very, very intriguing. Tell us about Andy, Gina. Well, Andy is uh, an amazing photographer and he went from being an emerging to a highly sought-after photographer in his field, which happens to be architecture photography. But even if this is not something that you're into, the stuff that Andy says is well worth listening to because he shares – everything that he did on a practical level to get in front of all these influential uh, people to get the work that he does. So he talks about stuff like the importance of finding your niche, how to approach prospective clients and what to say and why. He actually walks us through an entire conversation that he would have with these people and the step-by-step approach, which is not everybody tells you that stuff. He talks about Mm. uh, pricing as an emerging photographer and the importance of developing long-term relationships. And then we go into the actual work itself that he does. And again, all all these techniques that Andy talks about can apply to any genre of photography. So like pre-visualizing the shots. He talks about the language of camera angles, which was just fascinating and the importance of seeing and understanding light. And there was like, he talked about um, when he works in a building and then this can apply to working with people or working with products and the importance of understanding uh, the building or product and, and showing some sort of character of that object. And I think that's so important And then he will walk us through a shoot and share uh, his thoughts on pre-production and the gear choices and uh, his preferred lighting styles. Cool. So let's have a listen to Andy McPherson. Andy McPherson, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hi, Gina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm well. It's great to be here. It's great to chat to you. Just before we get started... Where in the world are you? I'm in a little town in northern New South Wales uh, called Kingscliff, which is about 10 minutes south of the Gold Coast and about half an hour north of Byron Bay. And you guys have been battered by storms. Are you, are you, have you been affected by the storms in Queensland? Oh, we were affected by the cyclone. We have had, we've had some pretty severe weather. Yeah. Um, at the moment, there's a very big storm that's just rolled in, so... Not so much for, in terms of, you know, we've been quite safe in terms of property. We're sort of on the tail end of, of the cyclone and the storms, but um, uh, affected in, in the sense of work in that I can't get outside and shoot as many buildings as, um, as I'd like at the moment. Because you've got poopy skies at the moment. They'd be very dark and rainy. and Yeah, more, more so the rain. Um, sometimes it's great. You know, I shot a great uh, house last week uh, in some really stormy weather and it was from an architect based in Melbourne and it just really suited the house to have that beautiful diffused light Um, but unfortunately it doesn't work for every property right so now Andy you're an emerging architectural and editorial photographer but like you you've sort of went from enthusiast to pro in a very short time like like a space of three years really Um, can you remember your first paid gig 
what that was and how you felt on the day? Yeah, oh, well, my first paid gig was uh, for a local architect who's based also in Kingscliff, and um, uh, it was a beautiful house. It was a modern Hampton-style house. It was a new build, and it was a big house, and I remember being so nervous I almost <laughs> called another photographer to see if I could pay him to do the job. Um, but, you know, I, I was all set to go. I'd hired a tilt-shift lens uh, at the time because I knew I'd, I needed one of those to shoot a building. Um, but, yeah, I was incredibly nervous. And so, did you get? Were you happy with the with the with the shots that you got? Look, I think I was. Um, there was definitely shots where I was really proud of them, and I was immediately showing some friends who who were also proud. That the architect was really happy, mm. um, which was the most important thing at that point in time. And that actual house, I went back and, and reshot it uh, probably a few months later after I'd actually progressed. And uh, and it's an interesting genre in that there's not a lot of room for assisting my part of the world so you have to learn on the job right so let's go back now a few years from from that time Mm. how did you get into photography because like i think you don't mind my sharing your age now how old are you so i'm 34 yeah so you, you sort of got into it a little bit later in life it wasn't sort of this dream out of coming out of high school or or uni and saying i want to be a photographer what were you doing before photography so, so a couple of things. When when I was in high school, I used to love, um, you know, I was a surfer and I used to love video surfing. And so I was always interested in learning how to shoot and edit videos. And from that point, I learned a lot about composition. Uh, at uni, I um, I studied media and communications and, and did some, some other things. And then I ended up actually in sales roles, uh, predominantly sales roles for about 10, 10 or 12 years. And so that's uh, what I did a lot. But it was more brand building, I'd say, than sales. Um, yeah. You know, and, and part of that, you know, I was working for a coffee roaster and it was really important that that high-quality coffee roaster was really aligned with um, high-quality cafes. And so from there, I was learning about how things sort of went together. And yeah. so when you look at, you know, photography, choosing a genre is one of the best ways, you know, to become quite meaningful and to be able to learn photography. Um, and so, yeah, I was late coming to photography professionally, but I was always interested in um, capturing things or capturing a vision I'd had. And so I was always driven by the end result, I guess. Um, yeah. So when you were starting out, were you photographing everything? I actually, uh, when I started out as a hobbyist that just loved photography, I, I shot everything. Um, I naturally was drawn towards architecture. And I remember traveling to New York and there was a bunch of, you know, quite iconic buildings that I loved. And, and I spent 90% of that holiday with my wife at the time. Um, uh, sorry, we're still together, of course, uh, with yeah. my wife. Yeah, not at the time. We're still together. Uh, very much in love. But uh, with my wife, um, you know, and at that time I was shooting buildings and I was really just amazed, um, you know, especially at skyscrapers, is the engineering side of buildings that just blew my mind, the detail and the engineering. And so I was pointing a camera up and just constantly shooting all of those buildings and, um, and, yeah, I thought I had reasonable composition from someone that was, you know, sort of didn't really know what they were doing, I guess. So, and, and you talked about looking at buildings and, and marvelling at the engineering, which I know that like, that's not my first thought when I look at a building. Yeah. Where does that come from? Where does the love or, or the appreciation of engineering come from? Oh, look, I, I think I, as someone that, you know, didn't study architecture or engineering or, or whatever I saw saw them as these big jigsaw puzzles right. and I would see a building that was you know 30 plus stories and I thought how do they do it 
<laughs> it just amazed me that someone could bring all of that together and that these phenomenal buildings were, you know, standing. And, um, and there, these beautiful objects, I guess. Did you play with Lego as a kid? I was a Lego fanatic. Uh, I've got this theory that I don't think you can be a great artist unless you are obsessed with Lego as a kid. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think that's a good theory. I was absolutely obsessed with Lego, yeah. And my kids are too, actually, which is great to see. Did you keep your original Lego? Oh, I don't think I'd, I might. It could be somewhere, you know, in mum's garage. I, I don't know, but uh, I, I definitely didn't. I didn't, I, certainly not in my current house. It's worth a fortune. Is it? Yes. Okay, I'll have to go and dig it out. There you go. <laughs> Just Thank as an you. aside. Excellent. That's a great tip. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like a, a fairly typical road that you travel as, a, as an enthusiast photographer out on mm. the holidays, you, yep. you know, taking the architecture of wherever you are and then you photographing the things that you love how did you then take that leap to being someone who was uh, an enthusiast or an amateur to getting paid for your work what what was the transition like oh that's a great question um it it was a pretty interesting transition in that I was setting up I, I was employed at the time and on the side I was trying to set up a business that revolved around marketing um, with my brother-in-law mm-hmm. and and we were looking at some of that early influencer marketing and and I was more heading down the uh, I wanted to be more of a creative agent uh, style of business and he wanted to be more of a um, an ad sales kind of business and so we sort of diverted there and 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 it wasn't quite working but as part of that a friend of mine who was an engineer uh, which is interesting that I initially fell in love with architecture through engineering, hmm. uh, that a friend of mine, coincidentally, is a brilliant design engineer locally, um, had approached us and said, hey, look, we as engineers are often the un- unsung sort of heroes um, at times, you know, and, and so people clearly understand what a builder does and they understand what they're spending their money on. People often clearly understand what an architect does, they're engaging an architect, but they don't really understand the value of engineering and normally there's a tender process and, um, and, and, and so I want people to see the value of what we do. We're more expensive because we put more emphasis into design and coming up with great solutions. And so I really need something that will, will speak to that. And so as a result, I ended up writing a video brief. And to decorate that brief, I took photos of some of his architecture that was uh, some of the architect's work that he was working on was in progress. And um, as a result, a local architect saw that and, and said, hey, you, would you like to have a go at shooting some of my work? And, um, that's that's where I started. So I almost fell into it, um, and then the next thing is, you know, is you hear this as a as a pretty consistent conversation. It's being, how do you price it? You know, what what are you worth? And so, for me, being new, I understand that this architect was taking risk, and so I started off um, being very clear that I'm new, and so therefore that price should be reflective of where I am. If someone's crossing into this, and then as I've got better and better than that. Um, Pricing has obviously changed and the value of the images have changed, I guess. So you were up front with the architect at the time saying, all right, this, so this is what um, I'm charging you this because I am uh, an emerging photographer, but yep. th- this price is not going to stay like this. Yeah, definitely. And, and, that's, and that's been a really good thing where it's hard because sometimes I think if you're up front with that and you're producing great work, I think it's there's a perception thing that happens in pricing, and so I think if you're upfront that I'm new and this pricing is therefore low, 
versus being I'm established and I'm going to give you a low price. I think that's a completely different conversation. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think as you understand it, and one thing I did early on is as soon as I was creating images that I knew could be published, I was building relationships with publishers. Right. And that, and that for me was really important so that people knew that if I worked with them, I would be advocating for their projects in the way of uh, publishers. And so there's some different ways to add value to what you do. So I've sort of gone off track there. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but pricing, yeah. So I was really upfront about where I was at with pricing and then that pricing has progressed and changed as my work's um, become better and more publishable. So do you think that having that 10 years beforehand working in sales has helped you as a photographer to know the value of your work? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 think, um, I think it's helped in terms of getting new work. Um, I've been really lucky where I've originally it was me calling people and sort of almost asking them to give me a go and now I've got to a point where I actually don't have to do any cold calling. I'm getting inquiry or, you know, every day I have someone coming to me. So I've been really lucky that that has happened so fast where I'm not reaching out. But in the early stages, definitely. And I'd, I'd say some of my advice is to new photographers is learn, learn sales skills, not in the traditional sort of clipboard salesman that comes to mind for a lot of people. I mean, just, just car salesman. Kind yeah, of yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing worse than that. <laughs> Learn that if you're genuinely passionate about something and you can add value to someone, you know, and you admire their work, um, reach out to them, you know, it, it, pick up the phone. So give us an example, Andy, of how that might work. So, you, you, like, as you're trying, you're doing this cold calling, is it physically mm. cold calling? Which, you know, in this day and age, people think, what, you actually physically pick up the phone and call someone? Like people don't, don't realise that, yeah, you do. So what, what, what yeah. did you do? Did you get online and look at who did you research? Definitely. What's your process? Yeah. So the process um, when I was starting out was first I looked at who the local architects were in my area and that was through um, Google. Um, there's a great app if you are looking specifically at architecture and building. Um, there's an app called House, which is H-O-U-Z-Z. -Z, uh -huh. And I joined House and that gives you um, – direct sort of access to a, a glossary of um, local architects and builders and, and a whole bunch of other uh, suppliers and tradespeople. So I looked at resources like that and then Instagram was probably a huge resource and, and I suppose because I'm an architectural enthusiast as well as a photography enthusiast, I sort of knew who these people were and, and yeah, that's right, just pick up the phone um, and email is obviously a great way and then sometimes it's just as simple as getting on the phone and, and just being really respectful of people's time. Um, and saying, look, I just wanted to give you a call. Uh, I'd prefer just to chat and you know, I really love your work. This is who I am and this is where I, I'm at and I'd love to um, potentially shoot some of your work. And, um, so what would happen after that, after that first call? Would, they, would you need to follow up with another call or would you follow up uh, with another email? I'd follow up with an email. I think, um, I think if people are receptive to that, they'll often get back to you and, and often you know, as soon as I call them, I'd send an email within sort of 10 minutes just to say thanks for their time and thanks for the chat and send a link to my website. And I, one thing I really try to keep that initial interaction sort of brief, uh, you know, brief and, and especially emails. You know, one thing I learned um, early on was not to, to space email. It was not to, sorry, write big paragraphs and emails, mm. keep things succinct, keep things friendly, you know, and, and keep things, you know, especially things like paragraphs, keep them nice and short. 
and keep yeah. the sentences nice and short without sounding harsh. Obviously, keep the, the tone really friendly. Um, and that really helps, you know, because someone's more likely to click on the website link you sent through because it's in the second line down and it's the end of, at the end of a sentence and if it's lost in a jumble of a paragraph. Yeah. And would you put, what would you put in the heading of the email? I would write to the person's name um, so that if I didn't get there, you know, if I was like, oh, can I have your direct email? If that felt too uncomfortable, I would send it to the, maybe their office or, or yeah. their hello or their info email and I would just direct it to that person's name. So say I spoke to Matt, it'd be hi, Matt, dash, you know, architectural photography or, or you know, whatever it is. So, so it was really specific and short. And so I think, you know, yeah, often it will be hi, you know, whoever, whatever the person's name was you spoke to, whether it was the director or a project architect, and then there would just be a dash regarding, you know, architectural photography. And so they knew exactly what was in that email. Um, people are fairly time poor, especially architects uh, with small practices. They're busy people, and so you really want to make sure you're respectful of their time. And I think a lot of people, you know, hopefully, whether it was inferred or they consciously got it, I think they got that with me. So in the early days, were you, uh, with that first phone call that you're making, are you uh, telling them that you are an emerging photographer and that you love their work and you'd love to have the opportunity to uh, work with them? Is that That's exactly just- right, Gina. Yeah, and, and I think not overselling yourself as you're learning and cutting your teeth is really important. And so, you know, I was you let your images do the talking mm. um, it is a huge thing because they're going to check out your work. You don't have to go, oh, I'm amazing, you know, oh, shoot these great hero shots or, or whatever that is. I think you need to just say, look, here's my work. I'm new um, and I'm emerging and here you go. Um, and, and it's interesting, I was really lucky um, in that I chose to be a meaningful specific. So, so this statement in, that I heard from a great marketing guy named Seth Godin that some of you guys might have heard of, yeah. he has this really great um, statement. He said, it's better to be a meaningful specific than a wandering generality. And it's a mistake I see a lot of photographers make. And we were chatting about a little bit earlier uh, before this, Gina, where um, I think if you love a whole range of photography, um, I think you're better off choosing the one channel, uh, the one path for the time being because then you can get really specific. One, you'll be really meaningful to your clientele. So when I said I was an architectural photographer, a whole bunch of architects from our area said, oh, there's no one that calls themselves that. We've been using a wedding photographer or we've been using this photographer. Maybe we've been using someone that's in the wrong genre. Yeah. Um, and so suddenly I cut through a lot of noise. So I'm this specific photographer. But as I've grown um, – and being trusted as a specialist and I'm delivering, you then get trusted elsewhere. And so I love, as a, you know, as a hobby to shoot some portraits. And now yeah. I do have inquiry for people coming to me who want their portraits of their staff. And so because they trust me to deliver great photos of their buildings, they now are trusting me to deliver great photos of their staff. And so that if, to anyone starting out, pick a genre, be really specific about what you do and, and be, start off humble. Be humble at the start. You don't want to oversell yourself. I think that's great advice uh, on the uh, niching or pick, picking that very narrow genre for as a for its search terms and SEO, and, and that's how you stand out. And also the bit about being humble, great mm. advice. And yes, please keep those emails uh, very short because not like if someone's getting hundreds of emails every day or thousands of emails and they open up yours and it's like 15 paragraphs, they're not even going to read it. 
Oh, it's nothing worse. No. <laughs> so that's uh, that's fantastic advice. So, all right, you. What was the strike rate in terms of success? Because obviously, not every architect that you called is going to be available or receptive. You can't have all the work in the area, or or can you? <laughs> I've been you, look. I've been pretty lucky. Uh, my strike rate has been in my particular very high uh, I, I don't know the exact percentage I've been lucky you know and and um and I think the other thing to go back to that is if you're good at what you do be fun to work with yes. and be, be flexible you know understand there's you've got to have some boundaries so that you're not suddenly doing your 15th iteration of uh of the one image and and suddenly you know you're working for very minimal rates but Make sure there's boundaries and there's clear communication up front, but also be fun, be flexible. People want to have a good time. When you're photographing, especially with architects, this is the final stage of documentation for a project. And sometimes some of these guys, you know, that I've worked with now, it's this great honor because they've been working on it for five years. And this is the final and probably most important documentation of the the whole uh, process. And so you want it to be a celebration. You want it to be, you know, you want to be sincere, professional, and friendly, yeah. um, which is something I actually learned working for my old employer, All Press, who was a coffee roaster. That is wonderful culture, and they said hold being sincere, professional, and friendly in a balance, because sometimes you can be too sincere, too brutally honest, and you don't need that. No. Sometimes you can be too professional, and that's when you become a bit cold and clinical. And sometimes, you know. Um, you can be too friendly where you're becoming overly familiar and you're not taking the job seriously. But if you can hold those three things in a healthy tension, you end up with a really fun professional person to work with. And I, I end up with great friends, not only with the architects, but often the homeowners, you know. Yeah. Uh, I love that part of the process. But to come back to you, sorry, your question is, yeah, the strike rate was high and so I was really lucky um, early on. But one thing in terms of strategy, if you're looking of niches within niches, and you're coming back to being a sort of uh, a genre-specific photographer, is with architects, they often have very long relationships with their photographers. Mm. And a lot of them, you you know, architects have a huge career span and delivering, you know, images that define their work is so critical. And you see some of these guys, and they've been working with the same photographer from. Oh, we hear that. That's, that's a lightning. That's a huge. Oh, is that thunder? Uh, thunder. It's a big storm at the moment. Oh my god! I thought someone yeah. was dragging furniture around the. the, back, the back. This is that storm rolling in. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's full on up here at the moment. But uh, sorry, back back to that. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, and so some of these, you have to be incredibly mindful of the fact that yeah, some of these architects have had. 10, 20, 30, 40, in some cases, 50-year relationships with their photographers. Wow. And they start right back in the day. And and part of the reason why architectural photography was one of probably the, my, as an out, you know, someone that doesn't know every part of photography, but I believe they're one of the last ones to really be, go to digital because they were so used to seeing their work on large format film. Hmm. And so it's always been an incredibly precise, high-quality, detailed process. And so I immediately thought, you know, after trying a few times, hang on, these guys, they have these um, deep, you know, beautiful relationships with these other photographers. And so I immediately thought, hang on, there's going to be guys that are my age that are about to emerge out of these practices and become architects themselves that are going to have some projects. Yeah. And they, you know, some of these guys that are around and established, they might be too busy or too expensive or, or whatever. And so I found those guys that were more 
of my generation that were really stepping out for the first time that hey i'm i'm where you're at why don't we grow together that's great advice and in that in that pitch, when you're saying let's grow together, are you offering to, say, work on their pitches with them or to do folio together with them just to uh, develop that relationship? Yeah, de- definitely. Um, one thing I'm really passionate well, there's a few things I'm passionate about. Well, one thing is emerging architects because I know what it's like being an emerging photographer. And, um, and so part of that is to go, if you're doing brilliant work and, um, you know, we're capturing it well, let's let's get your work out to the world. Let's um, figure out how we can, you know, get your work um, to be seen by more people. Um, and, and so that, I mentioned that briefly earlier, and that was part of me early on trying to develop um, relationships. Where I was bringing the right kind of projects to the right publications to get my clients work out there. Um, yeah. And being from here, I'm particularly passionate about regional architecture. That's a huge push for me. I really love advocating for the Gold Coast, which has a lot of hidden gems in yeah. terms of architects and projects um, and is really overlooked at times and northern New South Wales. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm saying to the guys, let's go together. I'm keen to push your work. Um, and, and what I'll do is um, with emerging architects, sometimes it's one of those things where they don't have the big budgets. And yeah. so part of my strategy has been to not be the cheap guy but not be, as an emerging guy, not be right up on that ultra high end of the spectrum where some of the other more established guys are and so it's been a strategy for me um in a way um and so yeah we sort of match and work together and it's just been so good i've made great friends and i have great clients it's interesting because it's like three years in i still see you as a like a beginner in like in in terms of what a photography career is i I think that's Mm -hmm. quite new how Mm -hmm. are you um and obviously, like your work is great, but what are you saying to clients that that you, that gets you across the line? That you're obviously not the cheapest in town, you're mm. not the highest end, but you, you you know your rates are decent. Yeah. How do you how do you sell that? Oh, I mean, with with rates, um, I I I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, I, uh, I look at some things and it's a practice where you can sort of cost divide um, some of the rate. And so sometimes there's more than one interested party. So often I say if there's more than one, you can um, look at finding another interested party and I can deliver um, some extra licensing for uh-huh. not much more. Um, so that's definitely one thing. Um, I, I think the other thing is, is for some reason, you know, being – where I'm, I am. There's not a lot of architectural photographers around, so in a way, I'm almost winning a one-horse race, which right. is sort of fun and hilarious. Um, but yeah, look, um, yeah, I think people are seeing that I'm getting published a lot, and yeah. people are seeing um, one thing I've really learned about publishing is it's not so much a tool anymore for new clients. What it does is it confirms to people that were already checking you out through, you know, maybe a uh, word of mouth or often through Instagram. Yeah. Um, you know, that, you know, it confirms to them that, oh, yeah, I'm going to book that guy because I see he's getting published. So it's actually getting published as a tool for your existing audience, not necessarily for a bigger, wider audience like it yeah. used to be. Yeah. So the purpose of getting published is, is changing for photography, I think, uh, and, and for what I do. So, um, yeah, and, and I think also people probably seeing my body of work um, the value of association too. So I, work, I did some jobs for some very high-end um, well-respected architects and so naturally your work is then um, in people's minds going oh wow if he's shooting for those guys he must be good 
So yeah. it's that value of uh, association that's come in for me. So I've been lucky to be on some really some of Australia's top architects already shooting work for them. Fantastic. And, and like, I think the takeaway for me out of all of that is it comes down to the relationship. Definitely. Because people, it doesn't matter how good you are, if you're a jerk on set, <laughs> people don't it. want to work with you and they'll think, oh, and it's often That's right. you're spending a long time uh, doing these shoots. So maybe if the architect is on set with you, that's a lot of time that you've got to be together. And 100%. if you're a jerk, yeah, it doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, it just doesn't. No, you've got to, I think you've got to like people to do it, you know, and, and it is, it's not, it's, it's one of those kinds of photography that you have to be there all day. And the other thing is I shoot a lot of residential architecture. I have to try, sometimes try and convince homeowners to let me shoot their house pre-dawn. Yeah. You know, but but luckily, um, you know, once I show them my portfolio and the results you get from shooting when the light is right and, and I also show them because I love having people in my shot to give energy and scale to yeah. the images, once I show them my portfolio, they're normally really on board and, 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 and just say, you know, they're up early. But the other thing is there's a really particular person engages an architect and so they want the best images of their house and it's such a great genre to choose. You know, I'm so glad I chose it because, you know, people still highly value photography. It's one of the, the industries that where photography is the most, almost the most important thing for their industry, you know, um, you know, in terms of marketing and it, and, um, and it's also, um, you know, people that want are proud proud of their homes, you know, and they want it. They want great photos of their homes. So I often gift a personal set of images to the homeowner to say thanks for having me. So here's oh, a personal a great set. Idea. Yeah, yeah. Here's, here's a memento of your home because you know, obviously, in ten years, it's you know, hopefully going to still look as beautiful, but it's probably great to look back and remember it just when it was finished. Fantastic. That, mm. That's great. That's great advice too. Uh, all right, so. With your gear, what yes. what did you start out with when you were first shooting, and uh, has that changed at all? Have you added much? What what's so when you let's let's walk mm. us through a shoot. So let's just say that an architect contacts you to photograph a project. How does yeah. how does it all work, and how do you plan out when you're going to shoot the house? Are you going back several times? What happens? Yeah, that's a great question. Normally, um, yeah, so normally in that initial contact, I just have to determine the scale of the project and the budget um, of the architects. Um, and so that's another question I think photographers should be asking is, you know, what are you, what are you expecting around deliverables? Mm. Um, you know, if they are architects that have seen, you know, a lot of project architects that are starting their practice, they've actually – been involved in photography and seeing what deliverables are and so I think you have to be clear what their expectations are and then match with what you're offering um, so firstly I understand how big the project is so that'll determine whether we need a full day or a half day and right. so typically you know capturing an image you know capturing a project correctly in a couple of hours just isn't feasible for most residential projects so you're looking at a minimum of a half day and then often spilling into a full day um, you're then looking, yeah, at what, what they want. Yeah, so, sorry. sorry to interrupt. We'll just go back there. Uh, a lot of uh, new photographers would consider a couple of hours plenty of time and often a lot of clients will say the, the thinking is, well, they've got their little their iPhone or their Instamatic camera and they've mm. uh, Jan from accounts whipped around and got all the shots in 10 minutes. So an hour should be plenty. 
<laughs> have you had that situation come up with a client and how do you educate them? Uh, it's a great question. To be honest, I've only had it once recently. Mm. Um, I've actually only ever, ever had that once because, like I was saying, for most architects that I've worked with or even some of the builders I've worked with um, have been through the process with photographers that are more, you know, like an architectural photographer rather than, say, a real estate photogra- photographer which will zip through the house with a big a big flash. Yes. Um, whereas the style we're after, we're, when we're talking about architectural design, you know, we're waiting for light to come into the house because the architect's designed with an orientation towards um, an aspect. And so there's all different kinds of light that they're thinking about as they were designing this house. Um, so, yeah, to, an- to answer your question, uh, I basically talk them through the process yep. and most of the guys normally understand. And, and then once you're on site and you literally, you know, it's you've been there for two hours and you've got maybe ten photos, you know, your first ten photos, you know, that are, probably going to be publishable or, you know, depending on the project, um, you know, maybe less, maybe more, they understand it by then, you know, especially when there's some art direction involved as well. All right. So once you've established, you've got the quote down, uh, yep. how, how are you planning the shoot? Are, are there apps that you use? Are you just aware of how the sun moves in your particular region? How are you scoping that out as to, so that you don't end up driving across uh, the state and end up there thinking, I should have come in the morning, not in the afternoon? How are you doing all that? Um, look, that's a great question. Um, so there's a few ways I do it. One is I get a set of the plans from the architect. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I'm working in natural light, you just you invariably just end up knowing light. Um, so if anything's east facing, you know, normally the best shots are going to happen in the morning. Yep. Um, you know, northern stuff is going to happen, you know, again in the morning and it can happen in the afternoon. Obviously, um, in summer, the sun rises to the southeast and sets in the northwest. And so you have a limited window when you're going to get southern elevations. But I get, yeah, so to answer your question, I get the architect's plans and I look at that. And then I also have an app I use. Um, so if I can get to a site, um, sometimes with sort of the commercial pressure and, and being busy or the distance to a site, you can't always do a drive past or, yeah. or, a, or a walkthrough. Occasionally I do it when I can. Um, I use an app called Sun Surveyor. Um, which is a fantastic app that 3D models exactly where the sun is going to be based on GPS throughout the day. And so then I can plan um, exactly where it's going to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm, yeah, not there at the wrong time of day. Um, it's, it's, it's exciting though, you know, because you get to a shoot and sometimes you're yeah, pre-dawn and the sun might be a few degrees, you know, different to what the app said or where, what you planned for. And so you have to have a develop, uh, you have to develop, um, you know, uh, skill to expect the unexpected. But I'd say now that I've photographed a huge amount of projects in all different light, I've, um, you know, I've, I've developed a really subtle understanding of, of those changes. Um, yeah. You know, things probably when I started and you would think, that's great light, it's, it wasn't great light. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, you could just read it so much, so much better. Um, and, and you just critically, you know, thinking about, and, and probably for me, thinking about how I got to where I got, very quickly is I'm just obsessive. Yeah, right. it sounds I, I get, like it. I, I rehearse all my shoots in my head way before they go ahead. Oh, That's interesting. Yeah. So rehearsal, mental oh, – excuse me, Jenna. The, the kids. Give me just a sec. Holiday, I'm just on the phone, sweetie, recording. Can you go see mummy? Yeah, thanks, five sweetie. Four, Love you, darling. Kids are. That's my five-year-old. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Jim. 
that's uh <laughs> it's the going stir crazy so and we're, and we're back um yeah so sorry uh where were we yeah so, so you're I, rehearsing I, the shoot in your head the night before i love that and i can just see you know i've i've had such an amazing um yeah, so much amazing influence out there i'm so i get so inspired by not not just other architectural photographers but movies and and, and cinematography you know and 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 so you're thinking about light, you're thinking about orientation, and yeah, that's right. You go, I go to bed sometimes just thinking about that elevation shot of the building or that interior or um, how we're going to make the space come alive or what we need or yeah, – anyway, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just – I still do like, the same thing 30 years later, Andy. Yeah. I still do the same thing. I'm lying in bed going, oh, if the sun was there, I could get the – yeah, 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 and then I could do that, and that's how I go to sleep at night. So. Yeah, Oh, it's so wonderful. But it's, right, it's so right because you, you've got this vision and you, and you see, you know, sometimes I drive past these buildings that I'm about to shoot and they're so beautiful and you go, how am I going to do it? You know, yeah. and I can't wait to see it like that. I can't wait to see it. You know, I shot this, um, I shot this building lately and it was, and it was all this black glass and um, it was a north-northwest orientated building and it just had this huge span of um, – it was really because black glass and up the side it was all clad with sandstone. Wow. And it just had the most knifey, you know, I shot it on a 17-millimeter tilt shift lens and I just, I don't normally do much distortion. Um, I like keeping the buildings looking, you know, so the right angles don't look like suddenly they're big sort of pointy blades. You know, there's yeah. other things that love that drama. But this, I just gave it a little bit of drama just as the sun was kissing the sandstone. And it was just, and I, and actually I, I had these two, this gorgeous couple of surfers were walking up and I and I said to them, they're on the wrong side of the road. I said, could you walk in front of this building? I quickly showed them my work and got the permissions and they were so into it and had really cool single fin longboards. And yeah. so they'd be, because it looked over at um, Snapper Rocks, which is a surf spot up here. And, um, and they were just a beautiful couple with the cool surfboards, you know, and they were so chuffed to be in the photo. And so they gave it this great sense of scale, but also represented the context of the building. You know, because this is what people do. They there's this amazing building in the middle of this sort of um, you know old surf, you know surf town with old sort of 60s and 70s brick buildings, and there's this ultra modern building that didn't look out of context, but it just was right there. And so you're looking at the typology of the building, but then you're also looking at the people. Yeah. And they love everyone was so positive, and so I've got them just just as they were just in front of the building, a beautiful couple, and there's this just knifing, knifey, amazing sandstone clad black black building sort of floating in a way. So, yeah, they're those shots that you dream of. That human element is so important because otherwise I, I see a lot of interiors and exteriors where it's like, yeah, oh, my God, this is beautiful, but it's also very clinical and cold and you can't connect. And I think uh, as a viewer, mm -hmm. we want to have the opportunity to imagine ourselves in that space, what it would feel like to be in that space rather than being uh, on the outside and never being able to experience it properly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's funny because when I, you know, one of the big trends, you know, for architecture is almost this architecture lifestyle imagery now where, yeah. you know, just before I'd started, it was the hero image of the building. And I think people are saying, hang on, this is great and it's great for architects to speak to one another this sort of very clinical image because they they get it and they know yeah. what they're whereas for us you know as the the end user that wants to see architecture as an enthusiast we suddenly go either it, it exactly right you lose the relatability so but yeah. as soon as you put someone in the building you get the scale immediately um you get energy 
and it, and it is. That's right. The lifestyle. I'm so glad it's gone that way because I think it's just how buildings. That's what they're, they're designed for us. You know, they're not ornaments. Um, it humanizes it. And Absolutely. I think when it goes with, with everything, we're trying to uh, bring authenticity and human, a human element to everything in our lives rather than making it clinical. Yeah, absolutely. And then that's what, you know, some, one thing I've really learned to embrace is imperfect images. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I look back now and some, you know, I shot this cabin recently and all the gum leaves had fallen on the deck and, and you know, I maybe would have swept them. But I just loved all the gum gum leaves yeah. on the deck. It's how they fell, and it and it sort of it was imperfect in that sense, but it was sort of perfect in the in the sense that this is the context. This is where this beautiful cabin is out in the Australian bush. Yeah, and it's like that imperfection. It's like a, a, a portrait. You can have a portrait, and someone might have a gap in their teeth, and if that was removed, suddenly the perfection makes it bland. But it's the yes. gap that makes it beautiful. Yeah, it's the character, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, that, and that's it. And that, to, to kind of sum it up, that's it. You want to bring out the character of the building. And that's your job, I think, as a photographer is to, you know, is to do it. And, and it doesn't always have to involve people. Um, some, you know, obviously sometimes it's the way the light's hitting, hitting a building. Um, but also one of the things I do often is use some of those common objects in my shots. And so, you know, recently I, I shot this uh, really amazing um multi-res for some local architects on the Gold Coast and in terms of sort of the typical buildings that had been on that strip this is this very amazing uh, highly engineered facade and you couldn't get a sense of how big it is and it was really early in the morning and so instead of sort of getting a person running across where we actually put a a bicycle um, and we actually used a fixie because it was designed for the young trendy What's you a know, fixie? That sounds like a, a fixed gear bicycle that you probably see with some of the younger. Oh, I know they don't have brakes, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. they don't have gears, but they they have... they're like a straight-handled racing bike. But we put the bike in there near the garage because it gave it the much-needed scale yeah. and probably spoke to, you know, the designers of yeah. that of particular house. Um, and so immediately, you know, in a way, contextualised, but importantly, gave scale um, to the building. And so. I, Objects are sometimes really intriguing um, and, and they're not giving too much away as well. So to that, I shot a, at another house on the Gold Coast that was phenomenal by a Melbourne architect and that sort of strip where it was is known for these really high fences and so we opened the fence of the driveway right up and, you know, it was at that sort of almost at that twilight and people were coming up this one-way road on their way home from work and they were almost slamming on the brakes, rear-ending each other to look in because everyone wanted to see into this house as the talk of the talk of the town yeah and um you know had walkers stopping and peering in and so you know i'd snap these back of the heads of the people as they were peering in but we just half opened the garage door which was this big beautiful timber piece and there was this sort of overhanging uh concrete um element on the top of the building but just so you could see the car but you couldn't quite see into the house the car gave it scale but just having it a little bit open where you can sort of see and just added to the intrigue, I think, of the building rather than... Film noir for architecture. I guess so, yeah. In a roundabout way. I think so. And I think it's, again, like, you know, as a photographer, you're making artistic decisions and sometimes you work with an art director, you know, as you know. Yeah. Sometimes you work to a very tight brief and then sometimes people are trusting your instincts. And so, you know, once you know and you've settled on things like your camera settings and your lenses and how you shoot a building... Or how you shoot a person, for, you know, in your case. Yeah. Then the next thing is that that stuff's all settled. The next is the fun stuff is to go. I know how I'm going to shoot this now. How do we 
what's the next thing? I've got six great shots sort of in the traditional sense. Now what's the fun thing we can do? You know, and, and then those little, you know, suddenly, you know, delivering a set of images to a client and they're scrolling through and they've got, yeah, yeah, that's what we wanted. There it is, there it is. And then suddenly maybe 10 images in, suddenly this really quirky image pops in and they love it. And it's a, this pleasant surprise and sometimes they don't love it, but it's, but it's there, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's fun, you know. And, and again, it's another way to, it, it sort of humanises the, the picture with some, some quirky stuff. And, and, and you're giving, well, you're showing off the building's personality or character. And, yes. and I think the way you approach or the angle that you shoot at can really change how a building feels to the viewer. Absolutely. And, and actually, it's funny, I shot an education project earlier this week. And um, oh, sorry, early, late, late last week. Sorry. And um, I shot it actually from the eye level of a, a student. So it was a primary school interesting yeah and and so i got the you know i got it down i got my tripod down so there's uh you know about the same height and and so there's a whole bunch of probably 50 percent of those deliverables as if you're looking through the eyes of a student interesting um, and you how can, does that make the building feel does that make the building now feel uh a lot more heroic from that low angle definitely yeah definitely and 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 it, and it comes back you know when i studied um in you know in uni I studied um, film and the, one of the really you know pioneers of that sort of looking up to make the powerful uh, figure was Orson Welles yeah and you know there's those famous behind the scenes footage of them actually digging into the floor of the studio to get that shot you know to get that camera really low and and so it's some of that thing yeah where the scale suddenly really big and and you look through the camera and you're suddenly going oh wow everything's tall and, and above me and it's like oh that's right you know you, you remember that and it's not a terrifying thing it's a joyous thing you know in that wow look at the big wide world you know yeah. and these beautifully designed by some architects that were um purely you know education specialists and so um you know they were really progressive about collaborative learning and so you're looking at this sort of joy and you know and and with composition this is where you know coming back to gear is you need um tilt shift lenses you know you lean lenses with shift because you can get down that perspective and suddenly the composition's all wrong mm. and so one of the advices is if you're going to choose a genre great because it really um, will make you efficient in how you spend your money especially when the money is really precious as you're starting out on gear so um, all right so if you had uh if you were starting out and this mm. is definitely the thing that a photographer wants to do what mm. would be the basic starting out kit that you would yep. recommend okay great question um it look it depends on budget um there is some great uh rental uh options out there right now as well so you can you know maybe commit to for a few months to rent rent some gear um so there's some some guys out there, but if I if I was starting out and I was really wanted to be uh, committed to architecture, I would start with a 24 millimeter tilt shift lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Canon and um, Nikon make them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great focal length. I find um, you really have to get it right when you're shooting with something like 17 millimeters because if you turn it, you end up with some pretty, uh, which is a Canon tilt shift lens. Uh, there's a 19 millimeter Nikon, but if you turn them. Uh, you can end up with some quite extreme angles which can start to be overly distorted. Yeah. But having said that, you need to have all those focal lengths in your kit um, because obviously, you know, it's horses for courses because sometimes you're shooting in a very narrow alleyway and you need a hero shot of a facade of a building and 24 is just not wide enough. 
But so, um, and, so seventeen yeah, so, would be the widest. Like, would you wouldn't go? Because you can't get a fourteen tilt, can you? No, you can't. But that, having said that, Jenny, yeah, you, I mean, look, you could go to a sixteen to thirty-five, um, and you can figure out how to, you know, which is what I had once upon a time before I had a wider tilt shift lens. Yeah. Um, and then you had to figure out where you could position yourself and you were doing a lot more vertical correction in post. Right. And is um, that okay to start with? I think it's okay. I, I, I mean, it depends on where you're aiming. I think if you, for me, I wanted to, I loved architecture and I wanted to work on the best yeah. um, projects and I, I don't think the quality will entirely get you there. Um, but having said that, you know, if you look at some of the great architectural photographers today, guys like Iwan Barn. Um, his name is spelled I-W-A-N-B-A-A-N. Um, he's a wonderful photographer. He rarely shoots on tilt shift lenses um, because of his shooting style. So you can get away with it, but I think, yeah, you, I think you almost have to start on it. A 16 to 35 is good, but the main thing is about perspective. And so when I was starting, you know, and I didn't have shift lenses, I would figure out how to build platforms to get enough height so I didn't have to do too much correction. Uh, interesting. That's clever. So would you have all these little pancake um, in, the, in the back of the car that you could use yeah, platforms? I'd, I'd, well, I'd have, um, I'd have uh, stepladder and stools with flat surfaces yeah. on top. You know, it, it wasn't the most professional look, but yeah. I think people appreciated that I was going to so much effort, but then I could build up to get the height. But you don't then have the same perspective. You're suddenly looking at, and that can be interesting. Don't get me wrong. There's some really interesting images you can take by getting high and getting to eye level and looking in the building. Mm. But if you want that perspective as the viewer looking up at the building, which can be really dramatic and wonderful, you have to take it from eye level. You know? So you're always shooting, I mean, you know, obviously with the school project, the educational project, you shot at child height. But as a general rule, are you shooting at eye level? Um, for interiors, you know, there's that typically between the hips and the shoulders yep. uh, is, de- is generally a great one. Um, the other, you know, use for a tilt shift lens I discovered is let's say you were shooting a beautiful kitchen, but there was a higher bench, uh, an island bench that was high. And let's say the architect had specified some beautiful marble on top mm. um, and it was high. And so you had to bring your camera higher, but suddenly yep. there's a lot of roof in the image. Yeah. So the way you get the, you know, on a normal lens, you have to tilt the camera down and then you're going to have all sorts of problems with the vertical uh, lines on the side of the image. Whereas with a tilt shift lens, you can get the camera up high so you can see the top of the marble bench, yep. but you can shift it back down to correct the composition. So they're very handy and it saves you all that time uh, correcting yeah. everything in post, but they're not cheap. So you could start no, out with right. the uh, 16 yes. to 35 yes. or something in that vicinity. 100%. Yep. The one thing I wish I'd done earlier was... Um, Spent less on a body and more on yep. uh, lens. And I'd always advise that yep. at least have one in your kit if you can do it. Um, a 16 to 35 will be sufficient for most uses. You're just going to have to, that's right, work harder in post-production. Yep. Uh, uh, the, as soon as you can get a tilt shift lens, uh, at least one in the kit, definitely get one, I would. And and definitely, um, you know, full-frame body, of course, because they yep. only you know, I was detail. just going to ask that. So obviously full frame. And uh, yep. what happens if you can't afford a full frame? Oh, look, there's some great um, crop sensor models at the moment. Mm. Um, I think I actually started out on the Fuji X series. Mm. Um, you know, and again, the lenses weren't overly cheap, but overall you could get a really decent um, kit. And the image quality was amazing. Yeah. It, they really are. They, they have some... Obviously, some of the technology around their sensors are different to other cameras. 
Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of, yeah, they're, they're really, for crop sensor cameras, I was just blown away by those. And obviously the need, I tried to, uh, with a shift adapter, so I bought a, which is another thing, I bought a shift adapter and I tried to adapt some Canon lenses onto a Fuji body um, with a, a shift adapter and it partially works, but it wasn't doing, you know, getting the image quality I was after. And so then eventually I had to say, okay, I need to, um, need to upgrade. And so that's when I... Um, sort of bit the bullet pretty early on and said, okay, if I'm going to take this seriously, I need to take the gear seriously. Yeah. That's, and the other thing you can do is like, and this is what I always advise photographers coming up is go secondhand and get a full yes. frame secondhand. Yeah. Like I think as in the Canon of 5D Mark mm. II or three, not yep. that expensive, and you end up with a, a even a one DX these days is not that expensive. You end up with a pro body with all the mm. bells and whistles that come with mm. that, you know, weather sealed and all those sorts of things, for the price of an entry level camera. Yeah, that's great advice, Gina. And, and the other thing is, you build your you build your um, your photography equipment around your lenses. Mm. You know, and that's that's the other thing is if you start off with a crop sensor, you're going to actually have to upgrade all your lenses. Mm. So, you know, you're better off starting off uh, if you're going to go down the full full frame path with full frame body. And that's right, a secondhand body. Oh, my first full frame body was secondhand and it was fine. You just have to know what you're looking for to make sure that, you know, looking at things like shutter counts and uh, making sure there's no dots on the sensor or it's been thrashed. But, um, mm. you know, that stuff's pretty easy to, to look out for, so... Yeah, and you get a bargain. Now, I just want to go back to mm. seeing light. Yes. Can you, because I can actually remember when I first realized that, oh, my God, all light's not the same. And, like, yes. before I could read light properly, mm. I would, uh, there would be situations where I, I would go to a spot, take great shots, and the light was amazing. I'm like, wow, the light here is amazing. And I'd go back there maybe three months later in the afternoon. <laughs> And it's like, oh, it's not as good anymore, right? And then I started seeing the subtle differences in light. And mm. what do you remember that happening? Like you talked about shooting these buildings thinking, wow, the light's amazing. But then you realized what amazing light was. How was that for you? And how did you teach yourself to see the light and work out how, how it worked for um, bringing your interiors to life and exteriors. Well, yeah, when I when I started, that's right. It was sort of you know um, things like you know you get light sort of blasting. You think, oh, I want heaps of light hitting the facade of the building. You know, you think that's heaps of light. You know, and and you want sunrise. But you know, it's interesting. What what I found is it was it's been a progression, and you intuitively, almost intuitively, learn those things. You know, and then you suddenly realize, oh, that's where the sun was, and it comes from repetition. Having things like the app I mentioned earlier really helped, but. And then you realize where you love the sun, the sun to be in relation to the building. And I always thought, yeah, direct light. But interestingly, when light, you know, and you see that with some flash photography too, when light just goes straight onto a subject and kills all the shadows, it's a flat image. Yes. Similarly, backlight can be, obviously be, you know, problematic in that there's no direct light on, the, you know, a part of the building and it's really flat as well. Um, but, yeah, that's right. I think to answer your question, it's been a, a progression from just doing it again and again and again. And then you also then get specific about conditions. So I shot a building, you know, recently and I knew it was going to be a stormy morning and I was just hoping that the sun would break through the cloud at the time I needed to and it did. Yeah. And and 
And there's once you get hot sort of diffused light at sunrise being breaking through cloud, it, it casts a whole nother light onto the building in terms of color and quality. And, you know, anyway, so you learn all of those things, I think, from doing it time and yeah. again. One thing I definitely love with my buildings is to have a sun. Actually, it's I like it behind my shoulder, but yep. I like I don't like it directly behind. It. I like it out at a side, out to the side, and the reason being is that suddenly, you know, in the same way in the studio, if you were putting a light to the side of someone's face, creating shadows, yeah, like a loop lighting or split lighting, yeah, which are all beautiful. Don't get me wrong; it's all all good. Light's brilliant as long as you know how to how to work with it but um you know too much light actually isn't always a problem either but once you orientate yourself correctly to the light you know suddenly you've got a really interesting picture so i love having light often to the side because what it does is it will kiss the facade but it will catch things and create shadows and that gives the sense of depth yes you know and and i always remember when i first was you know learning um you know photography years ago is that image of someone with here's a circle and now I'm going to shade the circle, and here's now a three-dimensional image, and it's the same thing with yeah. photography, light and shade. Yeah, it giving it depth. So if you're just lighting right. that building front on with the light directly behind you, it's just going to be a flat yeah. image, whereas from the sort of slightly off, it's going to create that shadow and highlight shadow, give it like three, make it three-dimensional. That, that's exactly right. And same with an interior. You know, often I love actually shooting into the sun for interiors. You know, Interesting. If I've, if I'm shooting a really interesting kitchen and it's open plan and it's looking out into a beautiful garden or sometimes over the ocean, I like when the sun is coming directly in but, again, to a side so that then one side of maybe, you know, say there's one side you know, rather than the back of the kitchen bench, which is normally not much apart from some drawers, maybe on the other side there's some beautiful joinery, the light's sort of coming down and illuminating that joinery and bringing these sort of long shadows into the interior. Oh, nice. it, it just creates a really interesting... Um, image you know and, and the same thing with window light and so when you're pl- coming back to planning your shoots you're looking at what are the key spaces in the houses often architects aren't interested in every bedroom maybe yeah. the master um, but obviously these key living spaces like kitchens and lounge rooms you're looking when is that light going to be really interesting and so where are the windows where's the light in relation to those windows when you shoot editorial sometimes uh, they want more flat light, and so you shoot when the sun's higher. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, typically architectural photography, we like lots of shadows because it creates interesting pictures and shows this uh, volume of a space because obviously being in a space, not just the materials, often we think, oh, we want the pretty picture of the materials, but we also want to give someone an experience of a volume because that's really important. When you enter spaces and the architects design the volume really well, you you feel it immediately. Yeah. You know, sometimes you hunt in, you know, you intuitively hunch in certain spaces, or sometimes you open up in certain spaces and they relax because they're designed well. Um, you know, or sometimes there's elements of compression. So I remember shooting a brilliant property and we wanted to sort of show this. It's like the big reveal. And so you come in through quite a low door and then down a hallway, and then suddenly it just opens up into a double heighted void with all glazing looking over this beautiful um, uh, river. They're clever, so, aren't they, architects, the way they do so, that? It's, it's, it's a lot of showmanship in, in, oh, in into a good home. It's amazing. And and I think your obsession as a photographer has to match theirs. Yes. You have to be as obsessed as getting that shot as they were designing the building. And and I think, you know, that once that energy matches, you, you know, you get magic and, and rather than sort of being overly prescriptive, it becomes collaboration. And I'm sure you know that feeling when you're shooting a portrait and suddenly someone's, 
comes alive and they're into it and you find the connection and it yes. just there's nothing better than that when you're both like oh i thought that too you know you look you know how about this and yes that's exactly the shot i thought and you know and, and it's just this sort of energy sort of comes alive and, and you know you're getting something special it's just it's amazing there's nothing like it i love that and i love that you're so into the language of uh architecture it's next level stuff and I'm sure that every architect that works with you would immediately pick up on that but that's I think that's why your images are so good because of that you're really into that it's and you can hear the passion in your voice it's fantastic thanks Gina yeah that's um, lovely <laughs> I've got a million more questions but I'm mindful of time I've just got yeah. like one more about that I your preferred tripod and tripod head yes Great question. So um, I am currently using a Manfrotto tripod. Mm. I started off, um, interesting, I'm one of the few architectural photographers that don't like gear heads. Oh, really? Why? I I just like being able to grab the camera on a ball head and just move it with my hands. Really? It's how I, yeah, I just, I get it right. I, I you don't get know it why. right? Yeah, I don't know why. People just, they just, I don't know. It's just how I learned because I didn't have the budget. You know, I had the budget for a camera or a tripod. Yeah. yeah. And so I chose the cheaper tripod and the better camera. And now yeah. my workflow on a, you know, a ball head tripod's been what, you know, what it is. Don't get me wrong. It's a very sturdy tripod that I can hang a, a bag off if I need more Extra, stability. Yeah. Absolutely. But I just like just getting them just loose enough so I can move them those micro millimeters with my hand. It's just how it used to handle in the camera. And it also makes me feel you know, because I'm constantly handling the camera, you know, I'm shooting often with a remote trigger with the mirror up, so I'm not getting any um, vibration or any shake, so I'm getting very, very sharp images. Um, But, yeah, I just – it's just what I love to do. And so that's the other thing is if if you're starting out and you're seeing all these guys saying you need this specific tripod that costs, you know, $1,500 or $2,000 or you can spend that on getting the right camera equipment, I know what I'd choose time and again. Again, tripods, eBay, secondhand. There's a million, so many enthusiasts buy them and then they go, I'm never going to use this. And then it's it's brand new. It's never been used. You can get one for a hundred bucks. That is great. And that's what I did, hundred dollar tripod when I started off. Um, All right. So just finally, all your shoots uh, daylight only, are you ever using any fill flash? I do, I do, I have occasionally used fill flash, but I found because of, uh, I've been really lucky to shoot amazing architecture and most of the stuff's open plan, so I get a lot of light. Yeah. And I just, I love the natural light, the, all the subtleties of it, even if there's not much there. Um, so very rarely I use fill flash, um, but I do occasionally, yep. Fantastic. Andy, this has been amazing. You've been so generous with your information. Your work is beautiful. I really appreciate you coming on the show today and I wish you great success and a long, long, long future. Thank you, Gina. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. There we go, Andy McPherson. I love how he talks about, you know, getting started. He would not be afraid to pick up the phone and just start calling people because I think that that's really important and something that a lot of people, and I'm finding a lot of younger people, are allergic to these days. They don't pick up the phone and ring people. They text or they email or whatever and I'll often say to people well what do they say and they go oh I don't know I've they haven't replied to my text and I will pick up the phone yeah I know and you consider it a freak if you ring people 
<laughs> it's it's bizarre. And I know that um, Dean, who sometimes listens to this podcast, he when he was starting out, admittedly in the world of copywriting, so he moved countries and he moved to a new town and he needed to start getting just like a photographer a freelance photographer would started had to start getting new clients but for copywriting and one of the things that he did he literally went through the phone book and in one week in his first week there he called 500 people yeah and that was 10 years ago and that created so much momentum and of course not all 500 people wanted his services but he called 500 people in, but that was 10 years ago and he hasn't had to call anyone yep. again. I did the same, That girl. created enough work yep. that he was able to, that it, you know, kind of kept on going and through word of mouth and stuff like that. So you did the same too. So yeah. what did you do? I, did, I, I got the phone because it was, uh, you know, we're talking 30-odd uh, years ago. I got the phone book out and I was clever, Val. I reinvented it. Mm-hmm. I went from the mm-hmm. end and worked my way in because I figured <laughs> everyone else would start at A and so those, you know, ah. advertising agencies, Apple advertising or all advertising, those guys would have got the majority of the call. But by the time you got to uh, the end, yeah. you know, W, X, Y, Z would be yeah. the one that uh, were ignored so that's they're the clever. ones that I focused on yeah clever you know and that's you've got idea. all these all these fantastic ways to find out who the right person is to speak to in the first place it's like I didn't have LinkedIn when I was starting out you can go on LinkedIn find the company that you want to approach and find out who their marketing head of marketing is and you can yeah you, you can get yeah. in touch with them direct instead of having to go through uh, Jan in accounts who sometimes answers the phone, but that's a good thing too to learn to. Oh, hi Jan, it's Gina again. How's the macrame going? And uh, <laughs> you know, you have a little chat to Jan, and if you get along with Jan really well, then it's Jan who'll say, "Dave, it's Gina again. I think you need to speak to her. She's lovely. Mm. She asks me about yeah. my macrame all the time. It's just <laughs> be human, <laughs> don't you?" Yes, think? but importantly. You know, don't be allergic to the phone. It's 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 underutilized these days. So if you actually pick up the phone, you will be one of the people who stand out. You won't have as much competition. I was recently dealing with a photographer here in Sydney, and no matter what, I he had to do everything by email, and he refused to speak to me on the phone. And I did that. I did one transaction with him, and after, and because also with email. Tone can get lost. Oh, so and yes. <laughs> I just found him so incredibly rude and I've refused to use him again and I have told everyone how rude he is. He probably and isn't either. He, he was probably a really nice guy. No, I think he's rude. Oh, <laughs> anyway, but, but no. Nah. And uh, the fact that he just refused to get on the phone is inconceivable to me. Mm. It's just not the way I want to do business either. So that, um, yeah, not using him again, not recommending him to anyone either. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's if, if you're getting an inquiry from a, a prospective client, you never respond by email. It's uh, either you'll say, when is a good time to call you back? Or you pick up the phone and call them because I've found that I uh, can't relay my tone and my enthusiasm and my passion for the job as well as I can in the flesh when I speak to these people. And I can't tell you how many jobs that I've converted by getting on the phone and talking to people and asking them lots of questions and, and which in a text or a email transactions takes forever as well. So yes. It's, it's, and, 
and one of the things this guy tried to do was that I, like I said, I think it'd be easy for us to speak on the phone so that, you know, we can work out what exactly it, it is that I need you to photograph, um, you know, the brief. And he said, you, he replied by email, you need to trust me. I've worked for, and he reeled off Ooh. this list of, you know, big, <laughs> you know, world famous kind of multinationals. I know. I'm like, oh my God. Anyway, needless to say, never using him again. But anyway. That'll teach you value to step outside of me. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Problem is you live in a different state. But anyway, (laughs) um, what are you doing in the coming week, Gina? So I have – it's – I think it's headshot season because I've been shooting a lot of headshots. So I'm still uh, finishing up the headshot course for uh, listeners. So that shouldn't be too far away, Val. And I've also got uh, critiques for the goal community that I am recording. So there's some ripper um, photos to critique in there for them. So that should be exciting. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And if you if you are not familiar with the Gold Community, you can find out more at ginamilitia.com and click on Join the Community. It's a fantastic, wonderful program where you can be part of a community where you can ask Gina all sorts of questions. There's a private Facebook group. There's a whole heap of courses that you get and Lightroom presets that you get as part of your membership. There's a monthly Ask Me Anything and of course, Gina's always available in the Facebook group, and um, and it's just full of some pretty fantastic, aspiring, emerging, and established photographers doing amazing so things. You know, it's so exciting. There's always uh, different announcements every week, and everyone gets out there and cheers. It's like having your own yeah. sort of cheer squad supporting you uh, as they're asking their questions. And you know, Val, imagine how it would feel if if in this time next year you could walk into you know in a room or meet someone and know exactly how to how to like them exactly what to say mm, to them and yeah. have that confidence to do that well that's yep. that's what happens in the goal community so you know that could be any one of you guys uh, this time next year if you uh, want to come and take the plunge and come and work with me I'd love the opportunity to work with you and see see where I can take you Fantastic. So where do we find you online, Gina? So it's ginamilitia.com and I'm at ginamilitia on Instagram and Twitter and you can also find me in the So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast Facebook community. Yeah, so it's free to join the Facebook group for the listener community. Mm. Just search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com.